0: So I'm pleased to introduce our preacher for this morning. Uh, we have Tom Rabino coming to bring the word to us. Um, Tom hasn't preached in this church before, but he is uh, familiar with the pulpit. He um, was ordained in the Presbyterian tradition in 2012 and served at Wildwood Prayers for four years. Um, and Tom now serves here at Incarnation on our vestry. So we're glad to have him in, in the pulpit. I was realizing as I, as I was sitting in the service, like, can you ask for better? than the worship being done by Pentecostals, the, pre- the preaching by Presbyterians, and all organized by the Anglicans. So is, yeah. <laughs> you get this for free on a Sunday. Any kind of, so c- I come on, Tom, uh, welcome up here. <coughs> Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, as I get up, get set up here, if you uh, want to follow along in your pew Bibles, we're looking at John 18 verses one through 14, although full disclosure, I kind of shortchanged the last couple of verses just so you know. But it's on page 904 and before we get started, I just want to thank John uh, for a couple of things. First of all, John, thank you for not assigning chapter 17 from last week to me. <laughs> Because I think trying to sort through all that indwelling stuff, I probably would have been too busy, too dizzy to (laughs) preach that morning. So thank you. But uh, more seriously, thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's always humbling to share God's word, but especially when it involves a pastor trusting you to preach to his sheep on a Sunday morning. So I am very grateful for that trust and uh, for the honor of opening up God's word with you uh, this morning. Um, Before we jump in, let me give you a couple of heads up before we get started Uh, First of all, this is not going to be the typical three-point sermon that you're used to hearing. Uh, We're going to spend a little more time actually in the passage, and then after that, we're going to talk about three different questions to wrestle with in order to kind of apply what we've discovered there, so just a heads up on that. Another heads up is you're going to hear me use a big SAT word this morning, and that word is heinous, okay? And the reason why I know that word is because my first seminary class was on the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, and he uses that word a lot. So just in case you've never read his two-volume set of his works, which how anyone who calls themselves a Christian can possibly not read that is beyond me. But just in case, okay, just know what the word heinous means. It's kind of an emphatic way of saying shockingly wicked or evil. So when I use that word, that's that's what I'm uh, communicating. Uh, But before we dive in, please pray with me for a few moments. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that even now you would empower me to fulfill this role that you've placed me in this morning. I pray for humility and have me preach for an audience of one, you. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is not from your spirit, and either is not in accordance with the truth of your word, the truth of who Jesus really is. Soften all of our hearts, including mine, as we take a look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so usually when I preach, I usually open up with a funny or amusing story, but you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I just can't do that with a passage like this. I mean, today we are talking about the most heinous betrayal that has ever occurred in human history. And not only that, but it leads to the most heinous murder ever committed in that same history. And it was heinous not just because it was committed against a completely innocent man or that he was a great teacher or even a prophet, but because it was against someone more infinitely worthy than all those things. And yet this heinous betrayal at the same time was a critical piece in God's redemptive plan. For through this betrayal, the betrayed would declare God's unfathomable love for sinners of all kinds, including betrayers, including rebels and wretches and scalawags like you and like me. So let's jump jump in by setting a little context here. Uh, You may remember Jesus and his disciples have just left the upper room. Uh, We've learned about the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives additional teaching, and then he prays. And that's called the high priestly prayer. And now they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. And they're going northeast of Jerusalem, and they're crossing the Kidron Valley, which also involves crossing the Kidron Brook. But his ultimate destination is that Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And we know this that he has been there many times before, well, because uh, the second verse tells us that Jesus knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And another indicator that he had been there several times before is that these gardens were usually owned by very wealthy families or individuals, so Jesus would have needed permission and most likely a gate key to even get into the garden. So right from the beginning, We are introduced to the heinousness of Judas's act. Why? Because Jesus knew the place because he had been there with Jesus many times. He had been with Jesus from the very beginning. For three years, he had listened to Jesus' teaching, he had seen Jesus do unbelievable miracles. He had even been used to do some himself. He was Jesus' disciple, and after three years, he was his friend. And, and even hours before, Jesus had just washed his feet. And yet, Judas still betrays him. He comes in the dead of night with, as Matthew tells us, a crowd of, uh, armed with clubs and swords, a crowd made up of temple police, and a band or detachment of Roman soldiers. And let me just say that, you know, that Greek word for band or detachment in a literal sense means 600 soldiers. Now, I don't think there were 600 soldiers here tonight, because that word can also apply to other smaller groups, but the fact remains that we know it was a large number because of the mention of their captain later in the passage. You don't bring a captain for three or four soldiers. So Judas and the high priest and the other leaders, they were expecting trouble, and they weren't taking any chances. And then on top of that, Judas betrays Jesus in the most painful way, as the other Gospels tell us, with a greeting and a kiss. You know, Michael Card wrote a song uh, years ago now called Why, where he captures the pain of this kiss in his lyrics when he sings, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. But this whole thing is more than just painful and ugly. It's heinous and evil. It's heinous and evil because of who the one they have come to arrest really is. Jesus comes out to meet them, and he says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And this crowd of armed people with clubs and swords draw back and fall to the ground. What on earth? What is that all about? Why do they do this? Well, they do this because, as your Bible footnote may indicate, Jesus did not say, I am he. The he is not actually in the Greek. The Greek. What Jesus actually says is ego eimi, or I am. Does that sound familiar? You remember chapter 8 when Jesus and the religious leaders are verbally sparring over whether these leaders are sons of Abraham or not, and they grumble saying something like, this man is yet not 50 years old, and yet he knows Abraham? And you remember what Jesus said to them? He says, before Abraham was ego eimi i am and the religious leaders pick up stones to stone him why because in addition to making a claim of pre-existence which is a direct attribute of only god jesus attributes the divine name of god to himself think think all the way back to exodus in chapter 3 moses is speaking to god in the burning bush And he says, you know, what if I tell the Israelites that the God their father sent me to them and they ask me what your name is, what should I tell them? And God replies in 3.14, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. You see, the Jewish leaders had no doubts about what Jesus was claiming. He was directly claiming to be God, and that's why they went to pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And we should have no doubts this morning about what he's declaring here. Why did these men draw back and fall to the ground? Because when they were just exposed to a flash of Jesus's eternal power and majesty and glory, they had no choice but to bend their knee. See, it wasn't just any man they were coming to arrest. It was ego, a me, I am. The one that Colossians 1 tells us is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the one described in Hebrews one, the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And of course, John leaves no doubt about who Jesus is from the very beginning of the gospel. Remember back in chapter one, he says in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. See, what makes this betrayal such a heinous act is not just that Jesus was Judas's rabbi and friend or that Jesus did amazing things in God's name for the kingdom. It's not even that Jesus is a completely righteous and innocent man. What makes this betrayal so heinous is that the one that was betrayed was God himself. Imagine that for a minute. Sinful and evil men having the gall to betray and arrest the holy, holy, holy God who has come in the flesh to ironically save sinful, wicked people just like them. There are other things, too, that speak to who Jesus really is in this passage. Notice how calm and collected he is and how he takes control, complete control of the situation. I mean, think back. He had told his disciples many times that this night was coming about the cup he would have to drink, about his death, He told them that they would be betrayed and even told them by whom yet he doesn't hide in caves. He doesn't flee to the desert, but he goes to the very garden that he knows Judas knows about instead of running away. When the crowd comes to seize him, he goes out to meet them and even confront them. And on top of all that, in his darkest hour, Jesus is still putting others before himself. When Jesus, when Peter, actually, um, what I meant to say, takes his sword and probably is going for a headshot on Malchus, but and sliced off his ear, not only does Jesus stop and rebuke Peter, but other gospels tells us that he heals Malchus' ear on the spot. Hours away from dying, the most excruciating death on the cross, Jesus makes sure that his disciples would be let go. I mean, consider how he willingly and calmly let them bind him and lead them away. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not how I would be acting in this situation. I mean, quite honestly, in fact, I would be on the first boat to Ephesus long before Judas and his crew ever lit the first lantern that night. But you see, Jesus doesn't act like a normal person because he's not a normal person. He is the God-man. God indwelling in a body of flesh. And because he is God, he knew that all of this would take place, that all this was part of the divine eternal plan of salvation, that this all happened to fulfill the divinely inspired scriptures that revealed that plan. So Jesus' betrayal and arrest was also divinely ordained as part of the road that he would need to follow to accomplish that plan. And what was that plan? Jesus' suffering on the cross to pay for our sins and enduring the wrath of God in our stead. You know, John doesn't mention this part, maybe because, like with a lot of these details, all the other three Gospels talk about it. But he doesn't talk about um, what happened before all this goes down. But we know that Jesus had experienced utter agony in Gethsemane. That he, as he wrestled with an imaginary, uh, imaginably bitter cup that he would soon drink. But after that, now he has set his face, face like flint to accomplish the very thing that he came to earth to do. You know, Judas and his gang may have thought that they would surprise him, but Jesus is divinely calling all the shots. Now, how do we apply this passage to real life? Let's talk about several questions that can help us land the plane. One question that most of us have asked in the course of our lives and may even be asking this morning is Where are you, God? All of us in this room have felt the sting of betrayal, the pain of unjust harm, the negative impact of another person's sin. And in this passage, we're reminded that Jesus is present with us in those times as he was in the garden that night. That just like he wasn't caught off guard or surprised by the events of that night, he isn't by what's happening or has happened to us either. That just like that night, Jesus was and is in total control, calling all the shots, even over the evil actions of those who have harmed or hurt us. But I also know that for some of us here this morning, these same encouraging, comforting truths raise more disturbing questions. Jesus never caught off guard, huh? Well, why didn't he prevent what happened to me? He's in total control? Why doesn't he do something? Maybe you are confused, even angry with God. Maybe on some level you even feel that God has betrayed you. Well, brothers and sisters, I wish I could answer these questions for you, but I'm not sure anyone on this side of heaven can. But I can encourage you to be gut-wrenchingly honest with God and to keep wrestling with him over these things. And remind you that you are in good company, joining the ranks of kings and prophets and other people in the Bible who questioned God, lamented to him, even debated and accused him. You see, wrestling with God in this way will most likely lead to some measure of repentance on our part. But it will free you from the burden of those denied, unexpressed feelings and lead to greater intimacy with God, the same God who knows what you're already thinking and feeling anyway. Friends, I have walked in your shoes. I have been and can still be angry with God. I can still question his goodness. I can still doubt his love and care for me, all because of the things that were either done to me in the past or that are currently happening now. But I can tell you that when everything around me and inside me screams out against believing in him and trusting him, I look at things like the heinousness of Jesus being betrayed and nailed to a cross. And I remind myself of the unimaginable good that was accomplished there and the most magnificent love that was displayed there. And I resolved to dig my heels in once again, and choose to trust a God who not only shed His blood and died for me, but who now, as my great High Priest, is praying and interceding for me, knowing exactly what it's like to suffer the pain I'm going through, even the pain of the deepest, darkest betrayal. You know, another question that we probably all have while reading this passage is how, Judas. How, how could you do this? How could you do this after everything you've seen and heard, right? Man, this is a very complex question that may not even have a definitive answer, but an answer mostly likely lies in that mysterious tension between God's sovereign ordination of everything that comes to pass and Judas's freedom and responsibility in making the choices that he made. So long story short, answering this question is way above my pay grade as a volunteer preacher. <laughs> and I'm not touching it with a 10-foot candle lighter. <laughs> I actually think that a better question for you and I both to ask is, how do we keep doing the things that we do after all we've seen and heard? I mean, none of us can or have betrayed Je- Jesus as Judas did or abandon him exactly like the disciples did as they bolted that night. And even Peter's future denials and disowning of Jesus is not repeatable. They're all unique events in God's redemptive plan. But on some level, your sin, my sin, is a betrayal, is a denial, is a disowning of Jesus. Yes, Judas' betrayal was the direct cause of Jesus' arrest and later crucifixion. But honestly, doesn't our sin, past, present, future, doesn't that also drive him to the cross too? I mean, if we had no need of saving, then Jesus would not have had to die to save us. So after all we've seen and heard, living on this side of his death and resurrection of receiving his grace and mercy and forgiveness, experiencing his unfaithful love and faithfulness in our lives, how can you and how can I keep doing this to Jesus? This is my prayer for both me and for you, that as we consider the heinousness of Judas's betrayal this morning, we would remember the part that we played in sending him to Golgotha. And when, that when we hear the rooster of the Holy Spirit's conviction crow, that we would weep bitterly like Peter over our own sin, and I pray that we would contemplate the cross, where love, not nails, ultimately kept him hanging there. That we would remember that he hung there so his broken body could satisfy the divine justice in our stead, so that we could be called sisters beloved sisters and brothers in whom God is well-pleased. Let us fix our eyes on God's kindness, so incomparably shown to us there, and let that lead us to a depth of repentance and change and to an overwhelming gratitude that not only leads us to fight our sin, but to fiercely pursue righteousness. How can we not do this after all we have seen and heard? I'll finish by raising the same question that Jesus asked the armed crowd coming to arrest him. Who are you seeking? This question from him demands an answer from every human being. Whom or what are you seeking? For the Christian? This question challenges us to examine our hearts and honestly identify what is vying for our attention, our affection, which should be reserved only for our first love, Jesus. And for the one who is not yet following Jesus, answering this question exposes the futility of our efforts to seek after everything else but Jesus. How we give ourselves over to things that deceptively promise, over promise, and will completely fail to deliver Every single time. So, what are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Who am I or what am I seeking? Is it a relationship or some notion of romantic love? Is it escape through porn or alcohol or drugs or even work? Is it the praise and adoration found on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok? Or the potential fame and glory of going viral? Maybe it's the allure of influence and power or success or the security and lifestyle afforded by money and wealth. Or maybe it's just in a basic form of simply the physical thrill and exhilaration of having sex. We could keep adding to this list more and more things, but the end result is always going to be the same. And that is that nothing can save us or fully satisfy our souls more than Jesus Christ. You know, a thousand years before the events in John 18, King David walked the same path. After being deeply betrayed by his own son Absalom and others close to him and needing to flee for his life, King David leaves Jerusalem and he crossed the same Kidron Valley and the same Kidron Brook, followed only by a small group of his loyal followers. And as he ascended the Mount of Olives, David wept. And now a thousand years later, we have another man born in Bethlehem and from the tribe of Judah, another king who has been rejected by his own people, crossing the same Kidron Valley to ascend to the Mount of Olives. But when this king crossed the Brook Kidron, it flowed red red with the blood of the thousands of Passover lambs that were being slain in the temple, whose blood traveled down a trench from the temple mount into that same brook. And the one who John the Baptist had called, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was powerfully reminded that just in a few short hours, he would be the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. Like David, this king would be weeping, He would become sorrowful unto death, agonizing over the bitter cup that he had volunteered to drink as that lamb. But, you know, King David escaped and lived to a ripe old age, but this king wouldn't. This king, who now sits on that Davidic throne forever, came to this earth and to this garden to die. He willingly endured being hated, rejected, despised, being mocked, beaten, spit on, whipped, and allowed his hands and his feet to be pierced and his body broken. And as he suffered so unfathomably, the same agonizing cry of David from Psalm 22 is ultimately fulfilled as these words gush from Jesus' bloody and bruised lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who or What? are you seeking this morning? There is no one else, there is nothing else worthy of following and loving with your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength than Jesus Christ, the one who endured the most heinous betrayal so that we could be saved from our most heinous sins. Amen.